Welcome to the Talking Machine Transportation Podcast. I'm Jeff Cranson. This week, I'm pleased to have with me Lloyd Brown, formerly the Communications Director for AASHTO, the American Association of State Highway Transportation Officials, and now doing communications work for the consultant HDR. He's working out of sunny Phoenix and uh, always happy to have him on just to riff a little bit about various things going on in the transportation world. In Michigan, um, it's a big week. The governor formally signed a $4.7 billion infrastructure bill that uh, is largely IIJA funds that were uh, sent to Michigan and appropriated by the legislature and agreed to in a in a budget agreement between the governor and legislative leaders. And it is infrastructure in its broadest sense. It's not just roads and bridges. It's, uh, you know, it's a little bit for rail, a little bit for aeronautics and for water and sewer and broadband, all kinds of things. EVs certainly very important to us right now too. And we're gonna talk a little bit about those later and um, there are supposed to be some health benefits from switching over to EVs. So Lloyd, thank you for taking time again to do this. Absolutely, thanks for having me, Jeff. So let's talk first about fuel tax pauses. Became a big thing a couple of weeks ago. Everybody, everybody in politics looking for a way to show that uh, you know they're going to ease the burden on hardworking people's paychecks um, with gas prices. You know, for a while and just a, a, a steady ascent, um, they have stabled off. It's leveled off some, a little more stable, but uh, some states are still going through with pausing their gas taxes, which is, you know, seems really uh, like poor public policy to me, given that just about every state is really struggling to fund basic maintenance of their their roads and bridges. The uh, the concern obviously is that when you start cutting out your gasoline tax and you're not you don't have that revenue coming in for the maintenance and upkeep, but there's another part of it that I think is that most people don't understand. They just look at the bottom line and they think, oh yeah, well, I'd like to get back, you know, I'd like to get an extra 29 cents a gallon or whatever it is in my particular state um, and 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 have that as a discount. The problem is that so often the people who are putting fuel in their cars, they're not seeing that discount given back to them. You know, that that it, it's not like it goes back to the consumer when you when you cut out the gasoline tax. And so I think that that's a, that's a challenge, uh, you know. Why is, so it's, why is that? Well, most uh, it, often it, the uh, gasoline tax is paid at the distributorship, it's, and so uh, by the time the fuel makes it into the tank at the gas station, the tax has already been paid. So in places I know that was an issue in Maryland where uh, it was going to be a uh, fuel tax holiday for for a couple of weeks. Most of the fuel that was already in the tanks when that went into place had already paid the tax on it. So are you going to then give a discount to the to the uh, gasoline distributors who've already paid the, the tax? And how do you calculate how much fuel is in the tanks? It becomes administratively a bit of a challenge. Um, and, and you're, you know, ultimately that does get out there to the, you know, to the uh, individual gas stations, but it's not an immediate thing because the, the the tax is actually paid when the fuel is being distributed out to the stations. So in Michigan, um, <clears throat> the uh, some some lawmakers pushed for that plan, and uh, either on purpose or 
because of, you know, some poor judgment and a mistake. Uh, what they ended up signing wouldn't take effect until 2023, which sounds like a million years away to me right now, the way things are going. Um, but surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, uh, Asa Hutchinson, very conservative governor in very conservative Arkansas, um, said no to a proposal there to pause the gas tax. And they have you know, one of the lowest fuel taxes already. Um, you probably saw that news, I'm guessing. Yeah, I did. And also, I think in in California, the there was a there's a move to instead of doing a gas tax holiday uh, to actually fine uh, uh, fuel distributors that are gouging consumers. So it's taking that whole idea of, of OK, you're not giving the break to the to the consumer, but you're turning around and and holding the the fuel companies, the gasoline companies accountable for running up uh, prices on people uh, in a situation where maybe the, there's uncertainty in the marketplace. Yeah, and I saw that, but what I didn't see was any in-depth explanation of how they do that kind of investigation and enforcement in a hurry. Well, that's been it, it traditionally through the years you've been around the transportation world long enough, Jeff, you've seen that a few times where, you know, gas prices spike and then there's a you know, a, a question about, well, let's investigate the fuel companies and see about uh, how they're how they're maybe uh, uh, gouging or, or running up the prices. Uh, and and it never comes to anything. It's it's very difficult to prove. So but the point, I guess, uh, from that, it, whether it comes to fruition or not in California or anywhere else is is the fact that they're they're turning that around and saying the issue isn't about the gasoline tax. The issue is about how do we manage prices in a way uh, that that people aren't uh, seeing these exponential increases overnight at the fuel pump. So Michigan's Senate Democratic leader, minority leader, Jim Ananick, um, he's from Flint, and he put in a bill that would pause instead the sales tax on fuel and use, you know, some surplus funds in the budget to backfill that because that money goes mostly to education and some revenue sharing for you know cities and villages um, makes a lot of sense because that one um, is misunderstood by people and, and and because gas spiked so high for that period of time it was kind of a windfall that six percent sales tax you know th mm -hmm. those 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 institutions got a lot more money than they normally would have so there's there's all kinds of logic to this I say this as the advocate for transportation but um, you know, believe it or not, I do care about education too. <laughs> so that's a, a huge thing in Michigan. And I don't know if any of the places you worked, you ever dealt with the sales tax on fuel, but it, it creates a tremendous confusion because we're so often compared to our neighboring states. You know, Ohio actually has, you know, 10 cents higher fuel tax than, than Michigan does and 20 cents higher diesel fuel tax. And yet, um, it doesn't seem like you're paying anymore there because they don't assess the sales tax on gas. And I'm constantly trying to, you know, educate reporters and people about that and how, yeah, you can say this is what gas costs in Michigan, but you should know in terms of what goes to the roads. Um, it's it's not all of that. So I don't know what's what's the what's the ideal here to to make people understand how much it costs to fix the roads and what you pay at the pump is is a lot of it. And maybe just quit obsessing about it because it's the only thing you buy that you see the price on every street corner. Well, it strikes me that isn't it interesting, uh, or might it be interesting now to uh, 
uh, for those people who are concerned about a mileage-based user fee. Uh, you know, in a in a situation like this where fuel prices are are shooting up or going up or increasing, if you had a mileage-based user fee across the board, uh, it would be a more stable form of of revenue for the highway trust fund um, that wouldn't be necessarily tied to the price of of gasoline. It would just be you know, a, a, a fee uh, that would be set and it would increase, you know, whatever rate that the, the people in charge de determine, but um, it wouldn't be tied in with the with the gasoline, you know, the, the gas station on the corner, basically. And that's the user fee. Yeah, it's it's a direct link to the user fee. And I guess what prompted that observation is that your question is what's sort of the right mix. And and I think that, um, you know, helping people understand that that, you know, gasoline tax uh, per gallon gasoline tax is the closest we've come so far to a real user fee uh, on the system. And it's something that's been in place for a long time. But every state does it a little bit differently. You just described in Michigan, there's a sales tax that's associated uh, along with the with the uh, fuel tax. Um, in uh, other states, there's higher registration fees. In other states, there's different other forms of, of uh, fees and taxes that go into paying for transportation. So it's complicated and not every state depends so strongly on on gasoline taxes. Well, let's talk then a little bit because you flagged this story for me. Um, <clears throat> very interesting story that Marketplace did on, you know, the cost of, of transportation. This was specifically about transit, although it did get into to roads a little bit too. But uh, kind of shocking numbers, you know, that they they threw out there. Um, in terms of the cost per mile of building something related to, you know, a subway system in in New York or anywhere in the U.S. compared to, you know, projects in Madrid and in Paris. And they, they came up with some decent answers as to why it is and why it costs so much. But what was your takeaway from that story? Well, I think one of the strongest observations was the the uh, professor from uh, NYU who uh, you know studies these issues and compares uh, different uh, costs around the world. And uh, you know what he observed is that in in France and Paris they've been building out and improving their subway system really nonstop since they first built it. Um, and so they're constantly working on it and expanding it and building it out and making sure it's maintained well. Uh, whereas in the United States, we 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 build it and then we we kind of walk away from it and say, hey, what did he well, say? We took like 70 years off. He says 60 to 70 years off of, yeah. you know, we built the New York system and then didn't go back into the city of New York to to do any sort of major improvements uh, for another 60 or 70 years, which you was a number similar in D.C. where you were a frequent metro user. I'm not sure it was as long because I think large portions of of the WMATA system there in DC uh, were built out in the, I think it was the the 70s and in in, uh, in in the 1980s, but the 70s for sure. Um, but then uh, there were there were new extensions being completed just within the last. Uh, the Silver Line was just opened up within the last 10 years, uh, which is an which is another piece of that. So um, I, I'm not sure what the what the numbers really are in terms of the years, but yeah, I think there are gaps uh, from and. And in the United States, you know, let's take WMATA, for instance, they're building out the silver line while other portions of the system, the escalators don't work and the and the, right. and the rail cars are catching on fire. So 
Um, the, Take all those or, stairs know, that, at the hot circle a couple times. Yes, absolutely. Me too. We will continue the conversation right after a quick break. Hey, did you see that sign on the side of the road? What about those workers? Are you even paying attention to how you're driving? WorkZone awareness takes all of us. So, I mean, what's your theory after after living in D.C. for a while and dealing with this and, you know, working for an organization that was lobbying Congress, trying to, you know, help uh, new members understand funding, why it's so hard. Why is it different in European countries and, and Asian countries and really just about anywhere else? The, the mindset here is is like you said, you know, it's like, well, we, we built it and there was there wasn't like a sense of ownership from the start that this this is going to, you know, this is going to cost a lot to build, but it's also going to cost a lot to maintain. And well, I, I think that one of the things that we do here well in the United States is process. And we we certainly we do we do a public involvement process. We do the environmental process that has a public involvement process as part of that. There's a the engineering processes, and when you begin to link all of these things together, uh, you there one it takes a lot of people power to to get through the plans and the studies and the designs. Um, the other thing is people will go in and they'll buy the. They'll, they'll go in ahead of development. I've seen this happen in, in uh, my home state of Washington State when we we knew that there was a highway uh, expansion that was on the on the plans. People went in ahead and they bought the land ahead of it. And then all of a sudden the land became more valuable. And so now you're negotiating with higher real estate. Um, you know, there's just so many reasons why. Uh, but I think process is, is a big contributor. Uh, one of the one of the uh, items that's cited in the story, the marketplace story, was that in New York, the subway, that they wanted to put these screens on so that uh, they matched up with the doors of the subways to keep people from falling onto the tracks. And they realized that uh, with all the different versions of the rail cars, that none of the doors lined up and, and opened at the same spots. It's going to so, cost $100 million. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But, you know, I think it, it goes deeper than that. And I think it's it's cultural and not that this hasn't slipped into European countries, but the 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 ongoing erosion of faith and trust in our most basic institutions in this country, um, government, you know, religious organizations, uh, you know, the Rotary Club. <laughs> it's just it goes it goes deep and it creates a, a suspicion and it, and it, it just it plays to that inertia to never support tax increases. And mm -hmm. you know, as we talk about all the time in transportation, um, you can call them taxes, but really they're, they're user fees. And the, the best structures are set up as user fees. And we've, we've created a whole couple generations of people that don't think that they should have to pay anymore, but they, they want convenience and they want the best of everything. How are we gonna snap out of that, Lloyd? It's up to you to tell us. <laughs> Well, Jeff, you've got a head start on me thinking about that, so um, I'm not sure I've got much more I can I can I can throw at it. But I think you're right. I, there is a sense that that um, you know we want our system to work and function at its highest and most efficient uh, levels, uh, but we want also then to to uh, not have to pay a premium for that. And so, how how do we make that work? I, 
I know that there's a lot of really smart people around the country that are grappling with that every single day, and that uh, uh, I don't see a I don't see a ready answer. Um, you know, to be honest with you. Well, then let's take on something uh, that maybe <laughs> maybe there's some some shoots of hope here. Um, that Verge story that we talked about, uh, citing American Lung Association report, saying basically that a major shift to electric vehicles and clean power grid could save tens of thousands of lives over the next few decades. Um, now, I think you'd be quick to point out that even if we reduce tailpipe emissions greatly, which is what EVs promise to do, it's still about the sources of the energy that fuels those batteries. What's your take on that? No, I think that's exactly right. And and it uh, as much as we've seen the major automakers commit to and begin to really seriously deploy uh, electric vehicles, we're going to see a proliferation of those over the next you know four or five years. Um, right now, they make up such a small percentage of the overall light duty fleet, you know, which is your your basic general purpose cars and SUVs. Uh, you know, when people say we're going to increase by 50% or 75%, they're still just really small numbers. Uh, so it's going to take a, a little while before the EVs are really out there and the fuels, you know, the, the charging stations are all deployed. But the recent IIJA, you know, the federal the federal um, program that Congress passed uh, is going to put a lot of money toward that. And I know states are working on plans around the country to figure out where the charging stations need to be and maybe what some of those standardized plugs need to look like and, and some of those sorts of things. So it, we're making progress. I think we're going in the right direction, but it, it can't just be, we can't just hang our hat that electric vehicles are going to solve all of our air quality problems right away. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of things, but I, I thought it was interesting that they took a look at that and they said just the drop from, from tailpipes alone could prevent up to 110,000 premature deaths by 2050. That's a lot, you know. Um, and you know, with what we saw for a long time in our in our cities, especially the increasing rates of asthma, um, especially among you know otherwise underrepresented communities, minority communities that tended to live in those areas, um, it's 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 shocking. So if if we're not going to move away, you know, as as some people would would advocate, you know, for multimodal transportation, if everybody's not going to be taking a train or a bus or a scooter, you know, or biking to work, the the shift to electric vehicles itself has to make a huge difference. You know, I, I was driving along a, a, through a college campus this weekend, and I looked over on the on the sidewalk, and there was one of those little electric uh, robots that had. Uh, probably pizza or sandwiches in it that was rolling to a dorm room. And I thought that just took a vehicle, you know, back when it, you know, 35 years ago when I was in college, that was somebody in a old, you know, Toyota Celica that was running around uh, delivering pizzas, you know, probably with half the tailpipe hanging off and, and everything else. So while I have issues with robots on sidewalks, um, you know, sort of generally, uh, those those sort of the the recurring trips we're figuring out ways to maybe eliminate some of those you know with with drones and with these robots and some of those other things and and I I think that that ultimately is going to start contributing to, to to some of the reduction in in emissions as well at some point. Yeah, but when you were in college, depending on the time of night, you know, don't you think there would have been people that uh, grabbed that pizza before the robot could make its delivery? 
Yeah, where I went to school for sure. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Lloyd. Anything else you want to touch on in our, uh, you know, semi-regular free-flowing transportation discussion? I think that, uh, you know, even in the electric vehicle space that there are going to be people who are who benefit over other people. I think there's always going to be a diversity, equity, inclusion sort of lens for these sorts of things. So, for instance, um, I was reading an article yesterday about uh, these new vehicles that that can charge your home basically when the power goes out, so people aren't building, and 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 they can so you charge them at night. Generator. Yeah, your car becomes a generator. So uh, one of the usages that they're envisioning is you charge your vehicle overnight when the when the energy cost is less, and then during the day it trickle feeds back into your home during the day uh, when when prices are are higher. Well, you know people who don't have electric vehicles or don't have that additional feature on their on their cars will not be able to take advantage of that. So that means they'll end up paying a higher price. Than, than those people who have this this extra device. So there's always going to be you know some sort of perspective on this where we've got people who are figuring out ways to sort of reduce costs and get by less expensively and other people who are maybe going to be left behind. And I think we've always got to think about that when we're deploying technology is, is what what is going to be the larger implication and larger impact on the broader system and how it relates to all people. Yeah, I think uh, the the, the forward-thinking, truly progressive people that are thinking both about EVs and AV technology and automated vehicles, and and when we get to the point where there are dedicated lanes for automated vehicles, um, how are you going to make that accessible to, to everybody? And I, I know it's something that uh, Secretary Pete uh, has talked about and is cognizant of. I'm not sure how much is in IAJA that really addresses that, but you're right. That's going to be a that's going to be a huge. Uh, issue going forward. I think part of what you're getting at, right, is that it's it's one thing to incentivize people to charge at night, but uh, those people are probably the ones that have to work at night. So yeah, exactly. Good point. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Lloyd. Good discussion as always. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Jeff. Have a great day. You too. Thank you again for listening to this week's edition of the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I would like to thank Randy Doubler and Corey Petey for engineering this week's podcast. To subscribe to show notes and more, go to Apple Podcasts and search for Talking Michigan Transportation. Music